All right, we're going to be in Matthew 3, 4, and 5. All right, let's pray. Father, we are thankful that, as it says in Acts 17, that in you we live and move and have our being. And Father, it's because of you that we we live and that we can experience life in Jesus. And uh, Father, we thank you. Thank you for another beautiful day this morning. Thank you that we can be here in freedom, worshiping you. Father, um, we just give you today. And Father, ask that uh, as we're here this morning, that you would again just stir in our hearts uh, an incredible uh, excitement about your kingdom that we have the privilege of being a part of, the kingdom of God. Father, greater than any other kingdom and, and, and the kingdom that will last forever. Father, as we uh, are here this morning, please teach us, please excite us, about your rule and your reign as your kids that we can uh, take with us wherever we go, whether it's to school or into our neighborhoods or at work. Father, that we are a part of your rule and your reign and that we can pray your kingdom come and your will be done on earth today and tomorrow as it's being done in heaven. So, Father, thank you. Teach us. We just love you and bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. As um, you've already heard, um, it's, I would say my anniversary, but I probably should include my wife in that. It's our anniversary this morning. And as I was thinking about that, um, I was thinking about and, and the title of the sermon today, The Return of the King. And as I was thinking about waiting, um, as was we're going to look this morning and, and think about the, the waiting that was involved in waiting for the king, I thought the most excru- excruciating, wow, I'll just say use the word hard. Um, uh, <laughs> the hardest times for me in my life. Now all I can think about is trying to say that word. Um, The hardest times in my life waiting have been the times when I've expected Cindy to be home, um, coming home from something, and she's not home. Um, and, And my mind can go crazy at that time thinking, wow, did the... Narrow's bridge collapse? You know, was there a freak snowstorm in Tacoma? That, or was there a tornado? Was there a car accident? You have minds like that, that when somebody you're expecting, somebody you really care about, and you're expecting them, it's like, oh, my mind can go crazy um, if she's five minutes late. I'm, no, I'm not that controlling. The, um, but just because you care about that person so much and you, you what's wrong? Um, 
how much more if you're looking for someone who is an expected deliverer or a liberator. <laughs> Welcome, Susan. <laughs> okay. <laughs> awesome. We, we've talked about getting one of those slow-down things on that door, but they probably cost five bucks, and we can't afford that. <laughs> they, uh, uh, <laughs> It was March 11th, 1942, when General Douglas MacArthur climbed aboard a gunship in the Philippines under cover of darkness and ran a Japanese blockade. Um, Speaking to the press in Australia, where he escaped to, General MacArthur spoke the famous words that probably many, if not most of us, have heard when he said, I came through, and I shall return. Um, Logistical problems preventing reinforcements to come to the Philippines where MacArthur was, President Roosevelt um, ordered him to leave, fearing that he'd be captured and and the effort of the war would just be crushed, Um, which was good because April 9th, just one month later, uh, the Japanese... Um, took over and 10,000 American troops surrendered to the Japanese. And at that point, it seemed that all hope was lost. For two and a half years, two and a half years, um, they waited wondering, he said, I shall return. Would it happen? Two and a half years later, uh, as MacArthur took over command in Australia of the Allied forces. Um, On October 20th, 1944, he waded ashore on Leyte Island, the Philippines, and told the waiting press, I have returned. But think about those two years, I mean, and the war that was involved. Um, Would he return? Could he return? Um, Now put that in perspective. In a, a biblical timeline... Approximately 4,000 B.C., as we, as if we're to look at a, an approximate biblical timeline, Adam and Eve send, Genesis chapter 3. Um, and God's first promise of the deliverer that would come to deliver mankind from sin and their separation from God... About 4,000 B.C., God's first promise, Genesis 3.15, was made. That the descendant, the seed of the woman, would come and would crush the head of the serpent. 4,000 B.C. It was about 2,000 B.C. that God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, occurred. Where God said to Abraham that a descendant would come through him through whom the whole world would be blessed. And... In Galatians chapter 3, it was like the gospel, it says, that the deliverer, the savior, the promised Messiah would come. 2000 BC, that promise came to Abraham. It was about 1100 BC, and BC, I think we all know, before Christ, you know, 1100 BC, that God's promise to David of a descendant 
through him whose kingdom would last forever would come, the promised Messiah, 1100 B.C. And then about 400 B.C. comes, and for 400 years, again, nothing, silence. Absolute silence. Um, Think about that. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 17, it says, All the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations from uh, sorry, yeah, from Abraham to David, from David to the deportation, the exile to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the birth of Christ, 14 generations. 42 generations from Abraham to the coming of Jesus. They waited. I mean, think about that. I mean, two and a half years, but 4,000 years from the first promise, 42 generations from the promise to Abraham. 42 generations or 4,000 years, they waited and they waited and they waited. And there had to have been thousands of times during that, you know, is he going to come? Will he come? Would he come? Would he return? And then it happened. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. He came. Uh, What we're titling the return of the king, the king who had been rejected by his subjects, humanity, um, he returned. So if you're in Matthew chapter 3, we're going to look, and I want us to get the sense of the incredible anticipation that was there for thousands of years. Uh, It might help us to think of it in terms of the anticipation we have for the second coming of Christ. Uh, talking 2,000 years, half the amount of time that they waited and they wondered and they anticipated. And I'm sure, as we see in the Old Testament, for most of them gave up all hope that he would come. He's not going to come. It'll never happen. Um, And then he came. We're going to look at three things in Matthew that help us to understand and just the return of the king. The first, and we're going to start in Matthew chapter 3, is the king announced. uh, And then we're going to look at the king is approved, the return of the king. And then the king's subjects are addressed. And so really within, it's actually Matthew 3 through the end of Matthew 7, we see this. The king is announced the king is approved meaning he is the legitimate king and then the king's subjects are addressed as we see the return of the king and the restoration of the kingdom um, that had been promised in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 before we look at if you stick your finger in Matthew chapter 3 but I want you to flip over to Isaiah chapter 40 Isaiah chapter 40 Isaiah 40, verse 3. And this is a prophecy, again, 600 years previous, 600 B.C. about. Starting at verse 1, God says, Comfort, comfort my people. You've got to understand, the way Isaiah breaks down, simple breakdown, 66 chapters, chapters 1 through 30, 39, kind of mirror the Old Testament, 39 books in the Old Testament. 30, 27 books in the New Testament. I mean, so it's kind of like hopelessness, judgment, first 39 chapters, and then chapter 40 
and following. So the final is it's like the gospel, the good news, the hope that's going to come. And so the gospel, the good news is introduced. Chapter 40, verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. Her sin has been paid for. This is a prophecy, a promise that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And what is caught up in that simple little promise that sin is paid for, received from the Lord's hand, and the Lord's hand is a picture, is a portrayal, uh, or we could, uh, of Jesus in the Old Testament. The, the hand of the Lord um, is a reference to Jesus. That sin is paid for being received from the Lord's hand, double for all our sins. And then we come to verse 3. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And now flip to Matthew chapter 3. As the king is announced and in in reference to Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3, it says, in those days John the Baptist came proclaiming in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom is here. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight the paths for him. And so John the Baptist comes as the promised herald of the king, the one who would come and say, get ready, the king is coming. And so John the Baptist does that. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And so people come, as you see in verse 4, it says, John's clothes were made of camel's hair, He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts, um, you know, those flying grasshopper things, which are not bad. We eat them at Halloween time. Um, That's true, we do. I mean, we're not celebrating Halloween. It's hit the hay. We do chocolate-covered grasshoppers for the kids. They're, They're delicious, actually. And so that, so it's not the typical herald of a king, uh, all dressed in silk, but John the Baptist comes and it's indicative of the king that he's heralding. As he says, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so in verse 5 it says, people went out to him from Jerusalem, Judea, the whole region of Jordan, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And so as he heralds the king and says, get ready for the king, they're acknowledging their neediness and their need of this king that is to come and deal with their need. But how would they know who the real Messiah is? It's kind of like the old um, uh, To Tell the Truth show. You'd have to have been married 35 years probably to be familiar with that show. Um, and there were three contestants behind a curtain and the, the person was trying to guess who the real person was. And so all of them, all three contestants, I mean, three of the mystery people would say, I am Dave Frederick. I'm Dave Frederick. I'm Dave Frederick. And by asking questions, this person, the contestant was to, needed to figure out who the real Dave Frederick was. 
I am the real Dave Frederick, in case you were wondering. The, um, and so as John heralds the coming of the king and people are confessing their need, their sins, their neediness in preparation that they would be ready for the coming of this king that has been promised. Now the, the next question is, is he the real king? There were a lot of so-called kings or messiahs that came, pretenders. We come to the book of Acts, and, and as the religious leaders were, um, had arrested Peter and John, uh, when they were proclaiming Jesus and his death and resurrection, um, when they were arrested, uh, they were... Um, They wanted to kill him, but Gamaliel said, let him, let him be because there have been a lot of pretenders, people who have said that they're the coming king, but let's, let's see if he really is. So John the Baptist was the herald. He announced the king in fulfillment of the Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. The question is, will the real Messiah stand up? Was Jesus the real Messiah? And in these few verses between Matthew 3.13 and 4.16, we see four things that showed that he was the real Messiah. The first is in Matthew 3, verse 13 through 16. It says, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Now remember, what is the baptism of John? People are coming and confessing their sin, their neediness, that they need the Messiah. And now Jesus is coming and he's standing in line along with the rest of the other people who are acknowledging what? Their sin. To be baptized by John. So John in verse 14, he tries to deter Jesus saying, I need to be baptized by you. I'm a sinner. And you come to me? And John's saying, you're coming to me to be baptized as a sinner. I'm the sinner. You're not the sinner. But verse 15, Jesus replies, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And so John consented. I want you to flip back to Isaiah again. Isaiah 53, one of the most amazing chapters in the Bible. If you haven't memorized it, shame on you. No. (laughs) Yeah, you should memorize it. It's good. Isaiah 53, look at verses 4 through 6. And the expectation of this king that would come. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering Yet we considered him, what? Being punished by God. Stricken by him and afflicted that he was the sinner, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, the sin of us all. And so the first thing in him being the approved king is that he would come 
identifying himself with us as a sinner, despite his sinlessness, that he would come as our sin bearer. Another incredible verse that I've quoted many times, and I'm sure you all have memorized by now, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us. And that's what he's coming to identify with at his baptism. That's not the baptism that we do today when we baptize people in the name of Jesus, identifying with Jesus as their Savior. This is John's baptizing, coming to identify as a sinner in readiness for the Messiah. And Jesus came to identify at the beginning of his ministry with us as sinners, that as our sin bearer, our sin substitute, he could do what? Give us his righteousness. And so God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. That's what Jesus is saying in Matthew 3 here. Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness so that we could be right with God, us sinners. Jesus took our sin, identified with our sins so that On the cross, he could say, as he hung there and died there, it is finished. Literally, paid in full, sin paid for, the ability for us to be righteous, right with God, restored. And so the king is approved, the first thing, because he identified with us as sinners. Isn't that incredible? I think it's hard for us to understand how incredible because we're such good sinners or bad sinners. But think, he was sinless. Um, Sinless. And for him to identify with us as sinners. The second thing is, keep reading Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. As Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water At that moment, heaven was opened. He saw, and I think he referring to John the Baptist, saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on Jesus and a voice from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And so the king is approved not only because of his identification with us as sinners, but because of him being anointed by the Holy Spirit. Again, back, Isaiah chapter 61, a prophecy of the coming king, the Messiah. Isaiah 61, verse 1, it says, The Spirit of the Lord, the Sovereign Lord, is on me because the Lord has anointed me with his Spirit to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and to release from darkness the prisoners. And so the promise of who this king would be and anointed by the Spirit to accomplish these things. The third is, if you come, starting at chapter 4, verses 1 through um, 11, we come to Jesus' being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. 
verse 1 says, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I'm just going to read a couple of words. It says, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came to him and said, if you were the Son of God, if you're the promised coming king, tell these stones to become bread. If you're, if you're the Messiah, you should be able to do anything. You don't have to be hungry. Turn these rocks into, into bread. And Jesus answers, verse 4, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And, and then there's two more temptations. But the third evidence of him being the approved king is him successfully overcoming the tempting of Satan in the wilderness where Israel failed. Keep in mind what we just read and flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Fifth book in the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 8. It's an incredible parallel where God chose the nation of Israel to be his representatives before the world. That the world as they saw Israel would see God. Uh, Israel failed. And, and so Jesus came to restore and succeed where they failed and create a people of faith who would again represent him. And that's a people of faith, us. But notice, notice Deuteronomy chapter 8 says, be careful to follow. This is God speaking through Moses to Israel. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. 40 years in the wilderness, Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness. To humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna miraculously, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And so Israel for 40 years was tested, I mean, in order to see, in order for them to see that, that we need God. <laughs> um, and, but they failed. And, and so Jesus comes as the promised king to demonstrate his victory over the pretender, Satan. And in succeeding to be able to be our promised king and deliverer. So identified as a sinner, anointed by the spirit, tempted by Satan. And then finally, Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. One more, just evidence that he was the real Messiah. Matthew chapter 4, look at verse 12. So when the devil had left him, it says the angels came, attended to him. Verse 12, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. 
land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And so again, the promised Messiah, deliverer, king, proves that he is by fulfilling this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Will the king, real king, stand up? And Jesus demonstrated himself to be not only the king announced by John the herald, but the king approved by God, the real king to be our deliverer. And so he comes. As we come to the end of Matthew chapter 4, it's interesting. Notice in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus repeats exactly the same words that John the Baptist proclaimed about him as the herald. He identifies with John's proclamation. And and Jesus begins to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. I'm here now. I've shown myself to be the real king. I'm here. The kingdom of heaven is here. And so as we come to the end of chapter 4, we see in verse 23, Jesus going throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom as the coming king. And so as we come to Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we come to what is often called the Sermon on the Mount. But in reality, what it is, it's it's the initial addressing of the subjects of the king by the king. It's Jesus gathering his disciples, his followers together and saying, this is what it means to be a part of the kingdom as he returns to restore the kingdom. And so the the issue is any longer who is the real Messiah, but as Jesus addresses his followers, the real question is, who are the real subjects of the king? What does it mean to be a follower of the king? And I would encourage you to read all of 5, 6, and 7, what's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's wonderful. But I'm just going to summarize quickly what are called the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. As Jesus, verse 1, saw the crowds and goes up on a mountainside and sits down, his disciples come to him and he begins to teach them and he, he tells them, this is what it means to be a follower of the king. And I'm just going to summarize it as we go. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed or happy, the poor in spirit, those who acknowledge their spiritual neediness, okay? That's the first thing that it means to be a follower of the king. We've got to be people who acknowledge we are in need of God. I'm a spiritually needy person. God isn't looking for people to say, I'm a good person, I'm trying to be a good... God isn't looking for good people. God's looking for people who admit they're needy. And as a result of that, the second thing, grieve about that. Blessed are those who mourn, who, who grieve or are sad that, about their condition, their spiritual condition. Don't toss it off and say, I'm okay, I'm good. But understand their spiritual neediness and then are sad about it, mourn about it. And as a result, the third thing are meek. And the word is, I like the word humble better. 
meaning they've become emptied of themselves. They're no longer full of pride. They're no longer full of themselves thinking that they can do something about their spiritual condition. They can work their way into the kingdom. They can be good enough by helping enough old people like me across the street, you know. Um, But they've come to the point in their spiritual neediness that they realize, I can't do anything about it. And they're empty to themselves. And so the fourth thing, they hunger and thirst for righteousness. They hunger and thirst to be right with God. Understanding that only the king is the one that can make them right with God. The king that's been promised all throughout the Old Testament. The one who, as they're like sheep gone astray, is the one who, who their sins are piled on him and paid for by him. And so in their spiritual neediness, emptied of themselves, they're hungry and thirsting and saying, King, I need you. You see the connection between John the Baptist, people coming, confessing their neediness, waiting and looking forward to the king who could do something about it, make them right with God because they realize they can't be right with the king. They can't be part of the kingdom unless the king does something for them. And then being people that recognize that, they become, and then the rest is kind of, it's kind of like going up a hill and down the... Then there are people who are merciful because they realize God's mercy towards them. There are people who are pure in heart, not just people who have the appearance of righteousness or purity or goodness, but there are people who are in their hearts pure because God has changed them from the inside out because the king has made them right by his own righteousness, not their own attempts at righteousness. They're peacemakers because he himself is their peace. Ephesians chapter 2. And there are people then that might go through persecution who are persecuted because they're willing to give their lives for the king who gave his life for them on the cross. That's what it means to be a follower of of the king. Is that us? Is that you this morning? Just to kind of wrap up, the king announced, the king approved, and then this address to us as his followers. I mean, the king has returned to restore his kingdom. That's the good news about Jesus. He returned to restore his kingdom. And and he's far greater than MacArthur returning, right? He's the promised one, promised for 4,000 years, who would crush the head of the serpent and restore what was lost. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to restore what was lost. And that's why Jesus came. And he's come, he's returned, he's restored what was lost. Everything promised about the coming king in the Old Testament was fulfilled in Jesus. So just three questions I'd like to ask you in closing, just knowing all that. Number one, are you a child of the king? Are you a child of the king? Are you someone who has come to realize your neediness 
Or are you still trying to convince yourself that somehow you're good enough in the eyes of the holy God of the universe to get by? Have you come to the place where you've come to the end of yourselves and you hunger and thirst for the king to make you right in God's eyes? He's the only one that can do it. He became sin so that we sinners could become right. Are you a child of the king? In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, it says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we would be called children of God, children of the king. And that is what we are. Are you a child of the king? The second is, are you anticipating the coming of the king again? The coming of the king again. As 1 John 3, 1 continues, it says, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known but we know that when he appears again we will be like him for then what we by faith believe now we will see face to face are we anticipating the coming of the king one more verse second timothy chapter 4 verse 7 and 8 And this is what God through Paul kind of says it means to be a follower of the king. 2 Timothy 4, listen, as Paul is about ready to die in verse 6, he says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering and the time of my departure is near. It's probably a little bit more eloquent than most of us talk about dying. But notice he says, I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Verse 8, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but it says, but also to all who long for his appearing. Do we long? Do you long for his appearing? Are you a child of the king, and do you long for his return. And then the last one, are you serving the king? In Matthew 7, Jesus, he speaks some kind of sober words um, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount to his followers. Matthew seven twenty one. listen. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Just because you say, Lord, Lord, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower. Those words have become pretty cheap nowadays where it's easy to say, I'm your follower. But he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, the final, the coming of the eternal kingdom, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Didn't we in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. 
away from me, you evildoers. I mean, the king has returned, heralded by John the Baptist, fulfilling all the prophecies. But then he said, this is what it means to be in my kingdom. Are you a child of the king? Are you anticipating his coming again? And are you living for him as king? Man, what an opportunity for us to serve the king of kings and Lord of lords. And what an incredible privilege to serve him who gave his life for us. Let's pray. Father, ah, thank you so much. John 3.16, that you gave your one and only son, Jesus, who came, who lived, who demonstrated that he was the real king promised and then died. Paid the price for us to be right with you so that we can be your kids. We could be children of the king. Oh God, thank you. Jesus' name, amen.